Music, science, cosmic culture. This is the Blue Dot Podcast. This episode is brought to you thanks to support from The Space through funding from Arts Council England and the National Lottery. For more information, visit discovertheblue.com slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the Blue Dot podcast wherever you're listening. Hello and welcome to the Blue Dot podcast. I'm Professor Alice Roberts and I'm joined in the virtual Blue Dot festival tent by Professor Daniel Davis for a special episode as we dive into the world of pandemics and attempt to answer the question, how do you cure COVID? Daniel Davis is Professor of Immunology at the University of Manchester. He began studying the immune system when he was at Harvard University after getting a PhD in physics at Strathclyde University in Glasgow. So that's an interesting career change that I'll be intrigued to talk to him about. He's published loads of papers, over 130 academic papers. He's been cited over 13,000 times. So I think he ticks that box of being an expert, and we do need to listen to experts. His own research uses laser-based microscopes to watch how the immune system works. He's also written a couple of books. He's the author of the popular science book, The Compatibility Gene, which had the grand accolade of being picked by Bill Bryson as a Guardian Book of the Year, and The Beautiful Cure, which is a book about the immune system, described by Stephen Fry as one of those books that makes you look at everything human in a new, challenging and thrilling way. I'm Professor of Public Engagement in Science at the University of Birmingham. My research is focused on disease in ancient human bones, and I've written and made television programmes about human evolution and archaeology and occasionally embryology as well. I was a medical doctor before I went into university lecturing, and I still teach anatomy to medical students. That's enough about me. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alice. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm holed up at home again. I did escape briefly to do some filming Uh, which was interesting this year because we had to film in a very different way, obviously, uh, with the events going on around us. Um, But now I am holed up again at home. I'm doing all my lectures online. Uh, And it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a strange year, isn't it? Immunologically. Yeah, it's definitely uh, a very strange time we're living in. Uh, And as you say, now, now is, now is a good moment to, to think deeply about how the immune system works that there's this whole realm of science is is really come to the fore as being a really crucial frontier of of knowledge that we uh, uh have built up and now can really see the importance of now i'm an anatomist and i and i particularly like topographical anatomy which is sometimes called gross anatomy which is not gross as in it grosses you out although sometimes it does uh it's it's kind of anatomy that's available to the naked eye, I suppose. You can see it with a naked eye, bones and muscles and all of that sort of thing. Immunology, for me, when I was at medical school, I remember it being one of the particularly difficult subjects at medical school. Firstly, because you can't see it. And secondly, because it it's just massively complicated, isn't it? It's really, really complex. And there's, there seem to be, this is my perception of it, there seem to be lots of different systems all kind of working together. It's not just, you know, we say the immune system, but it seems to be a lot of different things all kind of coming together to protect us against pathogens. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, Alice. So it's true that it, the immune system is complex. There's two ways of thinking about that. You could, you might think, oh, 
what an enormous complexity of stuff going on. I'll, I'll leave that. Or, you know, we can look at it and think, wow, that is actually quite amazing how so many different kinds of cells, proteins, molecules, genes are all involved in this uh, network of things that happen to defend the human body against any number of infections or other diseases. And of course, uh, we can think about how animals fight off diseases. We can think about how the immune system goes wrong sometimes, which leads to autoimmunity or, or, or allergies. I, I think what, one of the things about when, when, you, when you speak about that complexity, one of the one of the truly amazing things about that, you know, in terms of how the body works in general, is this is a, a part of the human body that we understand the most, actually. So, of course, the brain is, is another example where there's this wonderful complexity. But actually, we understand very little about how the brain works. There's not much we can really pin down as to how anything, uh, where memory is, for example. But with the immune system, uh, we, it's part of the body that we have studied intensely, uh, deeply. It, it's a community of thousands of people across the world. And we understand a lot about it. We understand it, I think, probably more than any, any other aspect of the human body. So, that, so that's, that there is uh, an importance in the topic. And of course, uh, it's wonderful because we understand so much about it. All the swarms of cells that move into a cup to defend you against uh, germs, we understand that process quite well, actually. I find it, I, it is mind-blowing that, uh, and it's mind-blowing to hear you say that we that we understand quite so much about it as well because because of its extraordinary complexity. When did, when did it become a thing? When did, when did immunology start off as a, as a discipline in its own right? Oh, okay. So I think there are several ways of answering that. You could, you could go right back to Jenna and, uh, uh, and well, even before Jenna, there was sort of, folklore about the idea that you wouldn't you wouldn't get the same uh, uh type of infection twice and there was uh folklore that uh people exposed to um cowpox uh, accidentally were not so susceptible to getting smallpox and then of course jenna uh did the experiment uh um where he deliberately infected uh, someone with cowpox and so that they went then wouldn't uh, suffer from smallpox so at that point that you get the sense that there is an immune response, which is essentially the hallmark of an immune response is that you, your body does better fighting the same thing a second time round. Um, so that sense that there is, uh, that the body can fight off infections goes right back to then. And then you can argue that for the last, uh, you know, at least 200 years, we've been trying to work out how that system really happens. But there are lots of other starting places you you could you could think of so another starting place the first nobel prize uh for example was given to uh, so i think it was in 1901 was given to um the ideas around antibodies which was and that, and the discoveries there included the idea that if you give a mouse uh, a toxin and build up the dose of the toxin over time the mouse would survive what would normally be a lethal dose of that toxin. And so that meant the mouse somehow developed an ability to uh, uh, not succumb to that toxin. And, and, uh, it, and that, that, that power that the mouse gained 
whatever it was at the time that wasn't really understood what it was, was called an antibody response. Uh, and so the mouse then would develop antibodies against a toxin. So you could argue that's, a, that's an important starting place to understanding immunity. So there are lots of places at which I think you could argue this process began. So I think the best way to think about all of this is it's been at least a 200 year long journey uh, in working out all these different aspects uh, of how the body fights off uh, diseases because there are so many different components to it so many i think i've argued as well that in 1989 was a crucial moment uh in in our understanding of immunity and that was a time when all of the work up till then was centered around this idea that your body fights off the same germ better a second time round. but one particular scientist charlie janeway was uh once uh, uh chatting to uh, his wife, Kim Bottomley, also a famous immunologist, and they were thinking, how can we understand a lot about how uh, the immune system fights off a germ better the second time it sees it? But they realized they, we didn't really understand what starts the immune system working in the first place. When a germ enters into the body, what exactly kicks off an immune response? And they realized there was this huge gap in their understanding. Um, yeah. So there are lots of really crucial starting places. Uh, so it's quite hard to say what the starting place was, I think. I think there are lots of moments when things suddenly took a big leap and a, and a turn in, in our understanding. And all those advances over the 20th century where you see people being able to uh, determine not just the kind of chemical constituents of molecules, but also the shapes of them. That must have been really important to immunology because the the shape of the shape of antibodies in particular is quite interesting yes a lot of it does revolve around the idea of shapes of things in fact um uh, right back then when when, when people discovered this uh, this so-called antibody response uh, very early on uh, paul ehrlich uh, who also got Nobel prize i think it's like 1908 he he had this idea that this antibody response was somehow uh, locking onto a toxin. He he, uh, he had a slightly wrong idea about how that process would happen, but he had the idea that, that you would have molecules that could develop that locked onto the toxin. Uh, in fact, the way in which that really happens, the way in which, you know, let, let's think about that a minute. How, how can your body develop uh, molecules inside it? So your own human body has molecules that would lock onto anything that's alien to itself and and even things that are not even existed we know viruses are coming around and we're familiar with the idea new viruses come around every so often so how can your body fight off things that have never even existed before in the universe by having molecules that would lock onto something that has not even existed before uh the way that the human body does that i think is is genuinely one of the most uh inspiring things that you can imagine happening in the body uh, so let, let, if I, let me just take a minute to just 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 say that because i think it's it's just so wonderful so what happens is you have these immune cells um called b cells and they they rearrange their genes no cells in the body normally start rearranging their genes right they, so they rearrange the genes that's a whole other little field of science in itself how that happens and then they so they have a specific set of genes and that they're rearranging yeah, they're not they're not just rearranging their, their their whole genomes they're just they're rearranging a specific set of genes which are about making antibodies yeah and then they put up at their surface 
uh, a protein molecule which has a unique shape at its tip. So if you imagine this, uh, th this B cell is sort of a spherical object, the cell, and opposite surface protruding from the sphere would be these uh, antibodies, these, these small uh, protein molecules that have uh, unique shapes at the, at the tips of them. Now, what happens is if, if all of these, uh, the, these receptors have unique shaped tips and they can then stick to virtually anything, but you need to make sure that the B cell won't stick to anything that's part of your own body. So every B cell is checked. And if a B cell has something that would start sticking to something in your body, it's killed off. So you have then in your blood, a whole bunch of B cells, something like 10 billion of them, that have got randomly shaped things protruding from their surface. They can stick to anything, but anything they would stick to is certainly not something from your own body. Because if they had something that would stick to your own body, they'd already have been killed off. Now, if something enters into the body and then they stick to it, that B cell knows that that thing is definitely not from the human body and then that b cell will start could could start multiplying to then produce secretions so it will send out those molecules that would then stick to that object that's certainly not from the body uh and those would be the antibodies so it's quite complicated yeah it is it's amazing it's amazing and it's such a it's such a lovely kind of miniature miniaturized microcosm of of evolution in action you know this is this is natural selection happening on a population of cells within your body so that some of them fit their environment and some of them don't and the, the ones that don't fit their environment are the ones that are going to mistake you for somebody else uh and the ones that the ones that do fit their environment um are, are, to begin with they're allowed to survive if they don't recognize self and mount an attack against you and then there's positive selection on them if they're exposed to the the antigen that they've they've kind of always been waiting for that they're destined for yeah is exactly that's exactly right is it is exactly as you said there is of course a complete madness to that <laughs> which is that in the way i just said it you would have these b cells able to see things that are not part of the human body and then trigger this uh, antibody response but of course you don't want B cells to react to literally anything that's not part of the human body. You don't want B your, your immune system to react against the food you eat. You don't want that, you know, you're, you're breathing in dust and molecules from the outside and many things that enter into the body are, sim are simply not dangerous. So it's not quite enough to have an immune system that reacts to anything that's not part of the body. It also has to be careful to react against things that are very specifically dangerous. So you have this, you have to have on top of that system of producing antibodies, you have to have all these checks and balances to make sure you're only making that antibody immune response against something that's genuinely dangerous. And, and it's- How do you know? How does it know? <laughs> it's even more mad than that, because in fact, uh, as, as you'll be, you'll be familiar with the idea that some uh, types of bacteria uh, live in your gut and they're very important to, to our own well-being. And of course, you don't want uh, immune cells to react against those bacteria in the, in the gut, but you do want them to react against those very same bacteria if they were somewhere else in the body, because then it would be a sign of danger. So it's extremely 
exquisitely complicated how the immune system is controlled and it's controlled differently in different places within the body. So yeah, it's, it's pretty complicated, but it's also pretty wonderful to, to think about how all that works. Now look, in a nutshell, can you explain how the immune system knows whether something that is non-self is either quite benign or dangerous? How does it know? Because you can't hang around and wait. You know, if, you, if something's going to kill you. Yes, yeah, so there are several... Quite a lot of them will kill you quickly. Yes, yeah, so there are several strands. So the most obvious way you could think about that is, is if there's damage to the body. So when, when you have a cut, for example, then... Uh, and bacteria may or, or viruses may enter into that wound, then your body is, is already sensing that there's some damage uh, to the body. So, so immune cells will move into that area. Um, and of course, when a virus uh, enters cells, then very often it, it, it destroys the cell that it's entered into. And so the damage that it causes is something that's sensed by the immune system as there being a problem. So... Um, I mean, there are, there are lots of ways in which that happens, which is each of these little snippets are in fact whole realms of science with their own hundreds of people investigating the nuances and details of that. So this is kind of a, a sketch of, of how all of that works. Uh, yeah. So let's get on to viruses then. Um, I mean, viruses, I know there's this enduring question and I'm, I, I'd like to know what your answer to it is. Are they alive or not? Is it, are they living things? I mean, they can't replicate on their own. Yes. So if you say that that's a condition of being a living thing, then, then they don't qualify. But, um, you know, then, then, then you kind of go, well, there's lots of parasites that actually cannot survive on their own. So what, what's your conception of them? Are, are they alive? So like, like lots of things in science, my, my feeling about that is, in, is that it's just a sort of, the words are, are what get us entangled. And so the way to understand a lot of science is not try to fit it into a box confined by the definitions of words, but just exactly explain what it is. So in a, so basically the a virus is this incredibly small particle. You know, it's, it's, it's much, much smaller than for example, other kinds of germs like a bacteria. There's something like uh, 3000 lined up, of a uh, 3,000 vir little virus particles lined up would be about the size of a grain of salt. Uh, and they're just this incredibly small packet um, that is made up of, usually made up of a shell of protein molecules and very often some sort of fat molecules, a lipid uh, structure is, is the sort of jargon word, and then a membrane. And then within that, there's some kind of genetic material, and that can be made up of DNA or RNA in detail, but some genetic material. So there are these minuscule packets of molecules that, as you say, on their own, cannot multiply. And if that's obviously a key definition of being alive, then you could argue, well, they're not really alive because they can't multiply. But when those small packets of molecules enter into your own body cells or in animal cells, then they, have, they, they exploit the machinery of your own cells to multiply their own genetic material and create replicant viruses that then would bud out of the cells of your own body's cells. So at that point, they're sort of alive because they can now replicate, but they need your own cells to replicate within. So essentially, you could argue either way, I think, as to whether they're alive or not alive. Ah, no, you're sitting thing, on the fence. I thought I was going to get a definitive answer. I there, think I, I heard Paul Nurse talk. Paul Nurse, we'll, we'll, we'll go with what he says, of course. I think I heard what he said recently was that the virus is dead when it's outside 
the body or outside a cell and it becomes alive when it's inside a cell. So I don't know, we could go with that if you like, but that's also sitting on the fence, right? But as you say, it is, it's actually semantics and understanding how they work is more crucial yes. than pinning a label on exactly, them. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, where do they... Where do they come from? I mean, we'll get on to we'll get on to kind of the nitty gritty of where this novel coronavirus came from in a minute. But where where do they come from originally? You know, where how how have viruses existed? They seem to be things which can't possibly have existed before there were life form, forms that could copy them. Are they are they just kind of I don't know bits of uh, random random pieces of other life forms that have somehow gone on to have this kind of strange life or non-life of their own yeah it's not more i'm i don't know is this one of the things that comes up in these very in in a very general discussion is is very quick to end all my knowledge uh and, and and every 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 scientist is an expert in such a small fragment of the big picture uh and and and, and so here's an area where actually I don't know the answer. I'm not sure that we at all know the answer because it would be entwined with where what the origin of uh, life itself was because no one, no one really knows uh, exactly how any, any type of self-replicating life form forms. In fact, going back to something Paul Nurse said recently, that, that he thinks that's the greatest unknown in all of biology, uh, how life began. Uh, and I don't think we would know how viruses began, but it's not my area of expertise. I, w- I wouldn't even know exactly how you would tackle that question because it's so different from, you know, something like when you, I, I, you know, you've obviously uh, spent a lot of time thinking about how humans began, but that's but that, but something about how life began itself is actually extremely difficult to... Well, you gave back, you gave back so early. You, I mean, you get to the point where you're you're essentially building hypotheses based on what is possible yeah. rather than actually ever detecting what happened. So you're kind of going back beyond the possibility of anything surviving for that long that you could look at and say, well, that's the fossil of the first virus. Just, you know, the, there is, the only, there isn't yeah. that capability. The only thing you might have that's akin to sort of a fossilised version is, is, is versions of that um, uh, genetic material in virus that, that would occur in different... Uh, places in different other organisms, but that I, I, I'm just not expert enough to know exactly how that pans out. My guess is that we just don't know. Right, we don't know where they came from, but they're here and they're kind of part of life. And and they're, you know, for for any for any organism, viruses are there. Um, and we are faced with a particularly nasty one at the moment. Uh, where did that come from then? Uh, it seems to be that it has jumped species. Yes, it us. has jumped species. And uh, yes, it has jumped species. And po- what people do is they look at versions of this virus in other animals and then they would, you know, work out the likely trajectory of it moving from one animal uh, to another and eventually into us. Again, it's, it's another sort of little sort of sub-discipline of the whole understanding of viruses that I'm not especially uh I'm not really expert in at all but others have you know if you others have looked into this in detail and say well you know versions of this virus exist in other animals bats and other animals like that and at some point it would have randomly acquired uh, a version that would have been able to infect a human cell and then that's how these 
viruses move from one species to another. And, and, a, and, a, and of course, that, that then increases the chance of that kind of thing happening uh, productively for the virus if people are living near these kinds of animals and things like that or becoming exposed to them. Uh, but I think, I think that, you know, we've got to be careful ab about, I mean, you know, it, this is going to, this happens, this happens, our understanding even, even of those kind of details is still pretty slight because basically there are millions of different viral species that are out there of which only an incredibly small fraction have ever been looked at in any detail. Viruses are by far, well, if we, if we, if we were to say viruses are living things, then they're by far the most abundant living thing on the earth. So there's so, there's so much out there that uh, we really don't have any clue about uh, in, in the types of viruses that, that, that there are and the specific nature of what they are that make it, that there is, you know, there's any number of viruses that could feasibly come uh, down the line. And presumably, um, you know, this this particular one, uh, jump species because of a, a change to it genetically. I mean, I, I presume that's what happened. Yeah, so it, all the, it yeah, suddenly so the became way that the, able yes. to infect humans. So just by chance, every time these viruses um, replicate, they may gain you know, a change in their genetic makeup. And then the way that this virus enters into cells is that on its outer coating, there is a particular protein molecule that's now become quite famous called the spike protein. And then this yes. surface protein would stick to a particular receptor molecule, another protein molecule on the surface of our cells called ACE two which has also now become famous but what what happens then is that very often a virus would only have a version of the spike protein that sticks to a particular animal's version of the receptor needed to get inside the cell but then by chance a change could happen to the genetic makeup of the virus which causes a slight shift in the way that in the shape of the protein molecule that now makes it lock onto, for example, the human version of that protein. And then the virus could now, what would once able to enter an animal cell, could now perhaps have a chance of entering a human cell. And then if by chance the virus did come across human cell, it could then infect it. So that's how viruses could feasibly move uh, from one um, species to another. And that's also, of course, what makes the virus enter into very specific cells of the human body. So it's not that the state, it's not that the virus could enter any cell uh, of a human that they latch onto the a particular protein molecule on the surface of a human cell. So this current uh, pandemic, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, latches onto this ACE2 receptor that's in our respiratory airways, in the lining of our uh, airways, and that's how it infects the lung. Uh, predominantly, it can enter other cells as well, but it, it predominantly enters lung uh, cells. Yeah, and it's. Um... You know that's devastating because obviously we have a hole in our face, um, which is in communication with the with the air. And so if you've got something that's in the air and then can get out of the air into you via the lining of your respiratory system, then that's going to make it really successful as a respiratory virus. Now I I know that we've been worried about this for a long time, and 
you know we we've been worried about various outbreaks in the past and i and i think that you know we had the first sars outbreak and we had mers and we had swine flu and i think that perhaps with each of those there was the worry at the time that they were going to be much more devastating globally than they turned out to be uh this one um is has turned out to be a true global pandemic why why were we not ready for it i mean you know it's been up there on the on the global risk register for a long time and yet it seems to have taken us by surprise yeah i mean that's a complicated issue isn't it what why because as you say uh, many scientists had been saying that we've got to be careful about global pandemics and and it is and like you say there were warning signs from other uh SARS and Mars um, was, were relatively similar uh, in terms of the, 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 the initial outbreak. Um, so it is, it's hard to ask that. I mean, some of that is, is culture, I think. Some of that is that, uh, uh, you know, it, it, I think quite a lot of it is about how news is, is reported in a, in a way. It's, it's, you know, people do, people, news tends to focus on, local events happening because that feels more immediately important it's hard to get a global sense it's hard to worry about things that are happening all over the world and not happening right on your doorstep it's very hard to act on something that scientists are saying you know is likely to happen at some point in the future it's very very hard to act on that uh, it's hot it, it, it comes down to so many things it's culture it's the way news is reported it's perhaps even how the way in which um democracy is 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 organized i mean the fact that you have relatively short-term turnovers of governments and leaders makes it hard for them to do something that uh would be important only in the long term so all of these things uh we we do need to think about deeply because it is true that we do need to more and more do things for the sake of humanity that work globally and on a long time scale. Uh, and so we do need to shift our mindset, have the right type of global structures to do that. And that is extremely hard to do, I think. It's much, much easier for us to get very caught up in the immediate and the now and the local. And it's very hard to think about things that are global and happening on a very long time scale. Obviously, climate change is a good example of that. But there are many other things as well that, yeah, it's quite a difficult question to answer. I think trying to predict the cost may have something to do with it because you're trying to imagine how impactful and how, how costly something is going to be, whether that's a uh, you know, a change in climate or a, or or a new or a novel virus, and and then you're trying to think about how much you should therefore invest in protecting or mitigating against that against that risk, and it's it just seems to be an extraordinarily difficult thing for us to get our head around. What I was surprised at though, and I and I don't know whether this is just you know my own kind of cautious attitude, I was surprised that once the pandemic got going that particularly in the UK, we seem to freeze. And there was this kind of rabbit in the headlights moment where I was sitting there thinking, this is, you know, this is clearly coming and it's coming in a big way. And we just don't seem to be doing anything about it at the moment. And I, I you know, undoubtedly there was a lot going on behind the scenes, but for me, the lockdown came too late. And there was there was almost this kind of idea of exceptionalism that, 
despite the fact we could see what was happening in the rest of the world, we could see what was happening in the rest of Europe, that somehow we might go to bed one night and wake up the next morning and it had all been a bad dream. And it just seemed to be that grasping that reality. It was taking a long time for the penny to drop. And in February and March, I, I just felt like Cassandra. I was going around saying to people, this is going to be awful and we need to stop now uh, and we need to close our borders. And people were saying, do you think it's going to be that bad? Really? Do you think it's going to be that bad? And I'm finding myself in a similar position now, going, oh, here we go again. And now people are, there are still some people going, oh, do you think it's going to be that bad? And it's like, we, we've done it already. We've seen it. We saw it in March and April. And what is it about human nature that we, you know, we just go, oh, it's just, it's so bad. I can't even look at it. I, I It's amazing, actually. So I, I, I totally agree with that. That, yeah, right back in the beginning, I too was thinking, you know, this looks bad. We should go into lockdown before we actually went into lockdown, like you said. And even now, it, what, what, what's amazing is that the, you know, the, the government did, or, or it was reported that, that, oh, you know, we don't want to go into lockdown too early because people will fatigue of, of, the, of, of the restrictions. And I'm thinking, well, surely people will see that if you if we're saving lives uh these restrictions have some validity to them but actually as we have seen people do fatigue of restrictions and and it is hard and there are loud voices um from scientists as well uh suggesting that the lockdown is overstated that that we should you know let the virus rip or, or whatever uh there was a declar you know this this declaration that came out um uh, that included some immunology uh, epidemiologists from uh, renowned institutions so it is it is hard and i think that part of it it comes down to what the public what the the general perception of how science works that that there will that that the that science really really works by everyone in their own little world digging into their detail digging into the details of things but then it's a sort of consensus opinion and a and a People do tend to look at the evidence, you know, as the Royal Society says, take no one's word for it, look at the evidence and then come to a consensus view. But there will still be people on the fringes that would have different uh, views of that. So I think part of the issue in, in, in bringing the vast majority of people on side to what the right thing to do is, including having lockdown earlier, is about bringing a greater understanding of what science is and how science works to the public which is obviously what you do Alice I mean I'm interested what what do you think about that is that is that right do you do you yeah I, what do you think yes absolutely I agree with 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 pretty much everything you said there and I think that there's actually there's one thing I don't agree with which is that the the loud voices um because you know that recent declaration and those loud voices they are loud but they're a tiny minority a tiny minority and they are not any of the big health focused or medical organizations uh that you would expect to be uh, trying to provide a consensus at the moment they're certainly not that yeah that, that's what I, yeah i agree with that but then it's that they get they get you know if, if you're if you're not engaged in any in any sort of scientific enterprise and perhaps you left science education quite young and you would just read in any of the main newspapers that there are these P professor x and y from uh oxford university or stanford who have said this it's quite hard to realize or, or understand that that's 
that that is re- that is still representing a, a minority opinion. It's quite hard to do. Yeah, that. it is because I think we focus on personalities as well, don't we? So, um, yeah. so if you have particular personalities and you hear that particular view, you don't immediately think, well, that's that's a minority view. You think, and especially if those people have platforms, and I think that there's a there's an element there of a responsibility in our media for making sure that they do try to give i suppose the general population uh a feel for the 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 variability in opinion here and and the way that you know that that those minority voices um are very much in the minority and i and i and i'm slightly distressed at the moment looking at how this is playing out from a public engagement perspective that I, I don't think the media is doing enough to do that, and I think it's. And I think I, I see it as very similar to where we were with climate change um, yeah, a couple of decades ago, where there was so much weight given to either people who were denying climate change flat out, or people who were saying, "Oh well, it's happening, but it's just part of a natural process, and it's nothing to do with humans." And you know, we saw um, the media then really kind of swayed by those voices that said actually we don't think this is happening and we don't need to be as worried about it and that was a tiny minority view it was a minority view which was heavily sponsored as well of course by businesses that had a lot to lose by uh, protective measures around uh, around mitigating against climate change coming in uh, and I think there's something there's something like that happening again here and, it, and I suppose then it worries me that um it worries me why that's happening I, and i and i don't i don't know I, I don't i don't want to go all conspiracy theorist on it at all there are enough conspiracy theories out there so i wonder whether it's something to do with the people who are platforming those particular voices actually not understanding science well enough and not understanding how to represent the diversity of views within science um so i you know, I think it makes me worry about, I suppose, people like editors uh, and and the power that they have to to create this kind of misconception amongst the public that actually these people that are arguing essentially for herd immunity by exposure to the virus are in a teeny tiny minority, and that you know most most scientists working in this area. And most scientists who are not even working in this area but can approach science and understand how science works are able to see that, in fact, uh, the vast majority, the vast majority of anybody with any expertise here thinks that that is absolutely the wrong thing to do, that it is not the right thing to do to let this virus rip through a population. And that it's the wrong thing to do, not just from the point of view of human life, uh, although, you know, I would say that would be the priority it's the wrong thing to do economically as well. So it's not as though it's not as though we have uh, health pitted against economy here. Um, I, you know that that particular approach doesn't work either way. Absolutely, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. It, it, there, there are, it's it's part of this larger problem of 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 bringing science into our into our lives, into our culture. Science is only going to play an ever increasing role in these complicated decisions. And so it is. we do need people to understand how science works and that there are just these minority views. And as you say, editors of 
the media, those who commission TV programs, very important. What I really worry about even more than is not necessarily the minority of people talking about um, uh, bringing an end to the lockdowns, but it's what's going to happen next year when um, probably, in all likelihood, hopefully, there will be some treatments and some types of vaccines that become available. But in all likelihood, too, it's going to be that there's no miracle cure, that even, even if vaccines uh, do eventually prove to be safe and prove to help, they probably won't entirely cure everybody. Uh, we already know, for example, that in general, the elderly are less responsive to vaccines. So there's it's very likely that any vaccine is going to work better or worse in different groups of people and different types of people. And it's also true that it may, they may help some symptoms or, or some level of transmission, but not be an entire cure. And so then, and it's going to be really crucial that the, 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 the general population trust the process and trust how things are going, because I am absolutely sure there's going to be arguments over how we deliver vaccines and treatments, how they're distributed, how well they work. People are going to be nervous about taking them. Uh, it's going to, and you know, so this is just small stuff, this issue over the lockdown. The, the role that the science plays in society is going to be enormous next year. And, the, and the, we need to be uh, bringing out now the issues uh, of how this works, how, how we've got to be totally transparent about how these vaccines are tested, what they mean, how the process works. So yeah, I, I would uh, I would love to see much more of this in the newspapers and on TV and on the radio with all sorts of uh, uh, experts. We, we we yeah, as you say yeah. I mean, I think the things which make me um, optimistic, um, even at this point, uh, where we you know we are in a very very difficult situation there uh, and it is quite bleak the things which make me optimistic in terms of scientists engaging with the public are uh, phenomena like independent sage which is a group of uh, of scientists who all have different forms of expertise which they can bring to bear on this on this particular question of the of the coronavirus pandemic, whether they're um, modelers of uh, of the spread of disease or uh, immunologists or epidemiologists, and they've come together uh, as 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 a voluntary group to communicate with the public, and they they're doing that on a weekly basis. And I think that kind of thing is amazing, and to have that kind of resource and to have the the technological capability to engage directly with people is is fantastic uh but i wish more people were listening to them <laughs> i mean they've they've published some fantastic re reports over over the summer which i think if if we'd actually implemented some of those reports uh, we'd be in a lot better shape than than we are now i think one of the things i wanted to ask you is is where around the world do you see an example of best practice when it comes to this current pandemic where who do you think has got it really right who should we who should we be trying to emulate i think i think it's really hard to uh answer that question other scientists do very uh declaratively state it's going well in this country or that country uh and then sometimes i hear that and i look up what's happening in that country and i think it's actually extremely difficult to make the comparisons because 
the lifestyles in the different countries are just very different. The, the environment is different. The, so what worked well in one place may not, may not easily translate to somewhere else. And I, and I think we can get in a slight muddle. If we, so a good example was that a lot of people championed uh, the approach that Sweden was taking. But in, if you looked in detail at what Sweden was doing, supposedly on the surface, everyone, people were one time saying, look at Sweden, they don't have any lockdown, they were just milling about, everything's open, it's all going well, nobody's dying. And then you start looking into details and actually, you know, every little bit of that was not quite true, that the Swedish people were obeying rules that were there, they were, they were sort of isolating themselves anyway during the summer or early on in the pandemic, they were very often in fairly isolated holiday cottages around so and then it's not true that the that the hospitals were doing well people were suffering so i think i think it's actually quite difficult to make those comparisons but that is my own opinion because i do know others devi shridhar in edinburgh university for example has very clear she, she's a, an expert in global health which i'm not and she has very clear views on which countries are doing well i think it's quite hard to make the comparison i even, I, I even think that's true within our country i think it's quite hard to compare manchester to london for example because the way in which people live in london and in manchester is just very different the way you know that the, the way in which people accumulate in different areas the working from home the ability of them to work from home the ability of people to work in large groups with no with no open windows varies a lot in different locations so i actually think there's some merit in looking at each place uh, in its own right i think one of the things which um has been thrown into really sharp focus through this pandemic is the existing inequality in our in our societies and and the way that actually that that inequality becomes uh, completely I mean it already is it already is we you know we know this it already is a matter of life and death but when you've got a pandemic it 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 becomes even more so actually so you find that people who have the means are much better able to protect themselves whether that means working from home so being in those kind of jobs that you can work from home and you you do have uh internet at home uh versus people who are who are in jobs where it is it is inevitably requiring you to travel to a workplace and be in a workplace and and then and then access access to practical measures to protect yourself but also access to the information as well so i think we're seeing we're seeing inequality in all sorts of different ways during this pandemic and 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 again if i'm being optimistic about anything i think that i really really hope that some of what we've seen and some of some of that inequality that's been made very very visible through this year will mean that that might actually translate into some social and political changes which actually reduce that inequality in the long term i hope so yes i i genuinely uh, hope so too that's exactly what we should uh, what we should gain from this that we need to tackle inequalities deeply it essentially we need a a genuinely caring government <laughs> whatever whatever that yeah, is yeah and we need uh, and and it's about i suppose it's about our communities as well it's not you know it's not just the government is it it's it's um it's everybody caring more about the the population in general and that and that kind of that inequality which is which is on you know it's Absolutely. just unfair it's it's there's there's no there's no two ways about it it is just deeply unfair that you know if you have the means 
to send your children to a posh private school, they will, first of all, probably be tested for coronavirus now regularly, and they will be provided with really good remote remote learning uh, when they have to be isolating or when that school is yes. forced to close. Compare that with a state system where I fondly thought that over the summer there might be some resources for state schools being put in place. There was absolutely nothing. So state schools went back with the same pupil-teacher ratio that they had before coronavirus. They had no extra resources that they could use to spend on uh, acquiring new space or PPE or anything indeed. So, So on the one hand, we had Boris Johnson saying, schools are completely covid secure and then you look at them and go well well how because nothing has changed and getting your children to face forwards in the classroom when there's an airborne virus around isn't actually going to help stop it spreading and and of course we're seeing that we're seeing that um there are um outbreaks happening in educational settings of course there are i think ask any parent um about respiratory diseases in children it would have been a very odd respiratory <laughs> virus <laughs> If children didn't get it and spread it, I mean, the the the, um, the virus has also amplified our awareness of uh, inequalities in 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 other ways, as well as that. So you know, in the elderly, for example, I mean, also tackling it, it, it's made us very aware of of that. Uh, as a society, we need to tackle loneliness. We need to tackle any number of mental health issues. Uh, that have been sort of amplified in this time of pandemic, but they they were kind of there already. Um, and so, as you say, if you're in an optimistic frame of mind, maybe maybe we will be able to take on board some of these things. And as you say as well, you're right to point out it's not just the government; it's also us in our individual uh, lives. Should I mean I loved it in the beginning when the government would say, "Oh, you know." You know, if you if you're a kid who's got a grandparent, you know, make sure you phone them up and check how they are. That kind of kind of sort of very simple uh, nudge for us to look after each other. I hope we don't lose that, and I hope that stays with us uh, and and gets even more important. I hope we continue with that kind of thing. Yeah, I hope so. Those those kind of incredibly important uh, community networks and uh, and support. In your in your book of humanism, you have lots of uh, uh, messages like that. Actually, the little one that the green, the little green book. As our new little book of basically. humanism, I'm so glad you know yes. about it. That's uh, that has those kinds of nudges to sort of bring out the a, a way of life that you know would make you more caring. Whether you, I mean, I think you could read it if you're religious or not religious. Actually, it just brings out amplifies the way in which the right state of mind for helping each other i think i think humanism humanism is really interesting in that regard because um it kind of combines rational approaches to the world with with human kindness and empathy uh but actually even if you were to shelve the empathy and kindness for a minute simply the rational approach tells you it's not logical for there to be inequality you know it's just not logical for one person to uh, to be that much better off than another person or, or better able to look after their health than another person. So purely but purely, if you're just interested in fairness uh, and uh, and things being kind of logically correct, uh, then we, we should be trying to tackle those inequalities in the world. Then you can pile on the kindness and the empathy as well. And of course we should be. 
I mean, I think that, you know, one of the other the other inequality, of course, which we must mention that coronavirus has exposed is the vulnerability of black and minority minority ethnic communities to this virus, because uh, we, you know, we quickly need to get to the bottom of what that is and whether it is uh, socioeconomic or, or whether there's anything biological. And uh, and I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Um, but what we do know is that there are particular groups in society that that need uh, extra protection, or extra care being taken of them. Absolutely, yes. So, how do you feel about coronavirus at the moment? I mean, do you, do you think we're we're going to emerge from it anytime soon? I mean, obviously, it's impossible to say. But but I I do think that. Um, if you if we're going to be optimistic then then certainly that some of the treatments that are being developed uh are likely to help so we already have dexamethasone which is uh it's actually um it's actually a a a, a drug a medicine that's very similar to your own hormone cortisol it's um, a very old-fashioned it, steroid. It's not a new drug at all, is it? Yeah, it's not new at all. But but it's at least one that's sort of proven to help patients at the very severe end of the spectrum of symptoms that might happen. So we already have some treatments that are clearly proven. And many of the other treatments in development, although they haven't yet been proven to work, uh, logically, it looks like a lot of them are good ideas and some of them should help. You know, the, the the medicines that Donald Trump took, for example, uh, Regeneron, the one he did this little speech about on Twitter recently, the idea that you can in, give people antibodies that lock on to the uh, part of the virus that enters into cells or stop it from uh, being able to enter cells. It, okay, it hasn't yet been proven to be safe and it hasn't yet been proven to work, but logically it feels like that's a good idea. Uh, and I think a lot of those treatments are going to turn out to be very helpful which as you bringing it back to what you were saying before we've got to be careful about that that doesn't set up new inequalities especially in countries where there isn't the provision of um health for everyone free at the point of delivery so because some of these medicines are actually inherently expensive in fact to produce antibodies it, it's it's not easy that there are several steps uh, to the production of that kind of medicine, which makes it an inherently exper- uh, expensive medicine to produce. So we do need, so I'm optimistically, some of the treatments are going to come through. I think we have to make sure that that doesn't set up new inequalities. And then of course, there are many vaccines in development. I think there's something like 40 that have been tested uh, in humans and and maybe a hundred that have been developing in animals uh and then a few of those right now we don't know which vaccine is going to work so although like i said in the beginning we understand a lot about how the immune system works there are still gaps and one thing crucially we don't quite understand is what really makes a long-lasting protective immune response so the way in which so, you know, you, we can't just say, well, there's the virus. Now let's make a vaccine. Okay, this is how we do it. We don't quite know what is going to work. So the way that we're doing that as, as, a, as, a, as all of humanity together is to place lots of bets. And placing lots of bets is a good idea because my feeling is that some of these vaccines are going to prove helpful. Right now, we know that the vaccines can trigger an immune response. 
We just don't yet know in people whether that immune response is going to be protective or to what extent it's going to be protective and how long that protection might last, whether it works for everyone or not. But they're going to help to some extent. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly confident about that. Most scientists, I think, would be fairly confident that vaccines are going to help to some extent next year. And we're probably going to need a whole... It's, it's not going to be a panacea, though, is it? We're going to need a whole raft of other measures that go alongside that in order to, to really suppress this virus. Do you think we'll ever get rid of it completely? Do you think it will be something which will be just endemic now that it's gone global? Yeah, it is It is. It is uh, uh, hard to answer that because we don't know how well... I think it crucially depends on how well these vaccines work. I mean, we, it's unlikely you could completely eradicate the virus globally. That's, that's very rarely been done. It was done uh, for smallpox, but for most viruses, that's rarely been done. But I think you could there's the potential to squash the virus to quite a huge extent across the globe. But it does depend on how well these treatments work and how well the vaccines work and whether or not uh, it's cheap enough. The, way, the, the, the things that turn out to work, how easy are, is it to produce those things and distribute them? It's possible that we could squash the virus uh, quite dramatically, I think. But it's too it's too early to tell oh virus I squishing think this i time think next year yeah we'll maybe we should reconvene at, at, at blue dot in the summer or, or maybe another another online blue dot and and see how we're doing um I've, i i think we should probably i could talk to you all afternoon i mean this is this is one of those things where i think if we were actually at, at the festival we'd retire off to some tent and other tent and just carry on chatting because it's utterly fascinating um, but I am going to ask you one final question, Dan, which is uh, what have you discovered recently in your lab that you're particularly excited about? Oh, <laughs> OK. Um, well, uh, OK, so one of the things that we discovered uh, recently. OK, so what, when, when an immune cell sticks on to um, either of another cell that's infected with a virus or a cancer cell, some disease cell in your body, then very often your immune cells will directly kill that diseased cell. Now, the way in which that happens is these immune cells have inside them, they have these toxic protein molecules that come out of the immune cell, go in to the infected cell or the cancer cell, and then that triggers this process of the cancer cell or infected cell being killed. What we, one of the recent things we discovered is that when an immune cell sticks to another cell and it's then going to kill it, it was previously thought that these molecules would come out of the immune cell sort of one by one, go into the disease cell and trigger the disease cell to die. But when we watch that process, what we do is we use microscopes that are, that, to look in very high resolution how this thing is happening, how, how this process is happening. So we take immune cells out of your blood and we literally watch them delivering this kiss of death to, to a cell that they've got to kill. And what we observed was that instead of sort of sending out these minuscule little protein molecules, they actually send out clumps of lots of different protein molecules all organized together in a packet. And then that packet goes into the disease cell and somehow triggers the cell to, to, to die. So instead of sending out individual little molecules, it sends out these complicated packets. So if you want a metaphor, instead of like shooting across little bullets, it's sending over grenades. Um, and so that's, that's an example of the, the really basic science that 
my lab and many thousands of others are doing. And, and arguably, you know, well, I'm not, I'm not, that's not a cure for SARS-CoV-2 or cancer or anything tomorrow. But it's part of the process of how immune cells kill disease cells. It's, the, you know, eventually proven by others, it'll end up maybe in textbooks. And then eventually someone might see, for example, a cancer cell might have a way of avoiding that process of being killed. And eventually that kind of thing can lead to new medicines. So it's a good example. It's, it's, you know, there's the wonder of it. There's the wonder of how that works out. And there's the shock of seeing something totally new. And then many, many years down the line, that could maybe feed into something that's medically important. That's amazing. I love that. And it is, I mean, it is that kind of, that wonder, that awe at finding out more about our bodies and the way they work. And there's something just amazing in that knowledge, uh, in the ability to unlock that knowledge and to put another small piece of the puzzle in place. But then, as you say, the potential for that to actually have you know, life-saving impact in the, in the longer term. That's absolutely brilliant. Well, I'm going to bring this chat at the Blue Dot podcast to a close now. Dan, thank you so much uh, for your time. It's been utterly fascinating. Thank you to everybody who's listening. You can find out more information on the website, discovertheblue.com com slash podcast where you can find notes for this show and much more and explore the blue dot universe including details of all our upcoming events this is alice roberts for the blue dot podcast thank you for listening blue dot should return to jodrell bank on the 22nd to the 25th of july 2021 with bjork grieve armada and metronomy already confirmed if you'd like more information on Blue Dot Festival and Blue Dot's universe of music, science and cosmic culture, visit discovertheblue.com. Thanks for listening to the Blue Dot podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening. And check out show notes and more information on this episode at discovertheblue.com slash podcast. This episode was brought to you thanks to support from The Space through funding from Arts Council England and the National Lottery.